on this season, we'll explore our most ingrained beliefs, delusions, and archetypes, the ways that cognitive dissonance shapes our culture, and how our reality is created by the stories we tell. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection. Like appropriated from lumberjacks, like woodsy living, woodsy folksy living. You know what I hate? Stupid posers. You're not cool. You're really, really starting to aggravate me. I stay cool and dig all job. That's the reason I stay alive. When I was in my late teens and early 20s, I lived two very opposite lives. I entered college as an English major and began a prolific hitchhiking career. For nine months out of the year, I was writing academic essays about obscure poets and writing poems of my own. But during those summer months, I made it to almost every state, took hundreds of rides, hopped a train, camped every night, and trudged back into school each September with my personal brand of a slightly unmanageable manic shimmering. I'd write for hours and hours about all the things I had learned, all the people I had met, my love, a gold cut across my chest, a welcome wound from this real world I had finally touched. This was my rebellion after a whirlwind dual suburban high school life, good grades and the favor of teachers, and the secret trouble I love to get into. Like beat writer Jack Kerouac, whose book On the Road was published during the 1950s as this new generation was coined the hipsters, I thought the road had lessons to teach me. I thought the real world was somewhere out there, and I thought that I had the right to enter it. In truth, I did learn the most important lessons of my life, and I brought them back to the circle of writers at my college, safe and sound, with plenty of space and time to live out my art, to tell stories that perhaps have never been mine to tell. Okay, we should start by defining what a hipster means in this episode. Though it isn't a hard and fast rule, I guess anyone can be a hipster. Today, we're talking specifically about the white, middle, and upper-class hipsters. This character, in essence, is a seeker of cool, one whose personal brand of individuality is actually anything but. We'll be talking about trendsetters, considered geniuses of their time, who were also posers, taking almost all their cues from the black, queer, and blue-collar communities, often flocking to the parties and meeting places of the marginalized. First, we'll look at the mid-19th century transcendentalist writer Henry David Thoreau's famous cabin, where he went to live a simple life of self-actualization, which just happened to be smack dab in the middle of the land that freed slaves had made their new home. At the same time, the affluent who stayed in the city were attending what were literally called slumming parties, being entertained in the dangerous parts of the city with fake police raids and staged shootings. And then, as we talked about in our episode called Teenage Sex, the Roaring Twenties saw white youth pour into jazz clubs to see black musicians trying to emulate the glowing cool that they had yet to experience. They poured, too, into drag ball parties, where queers of all stripes put on lavish cabarets and drag performances that blew away any parties that these early hipsters had ever been to before. By the late 1940s, after the Depression and World War II had devastated America and the suburbs were greening outside these troubled cities, a group known as the Beat Poets sought the real and authentic, following around black jazz musicians to copy their every move and their every word. Then we'll look at the more modern echoes of these artists and how hipster fashion has transitioned via artists like Nirvana frontman's grungy working class outfits and how all these influences, black, queer, and blue collar, have affected the idea of cool up to the present day. 
We'll look also at the cognitive dissonance of the archetypal suburban hipster and how our posturing, our posing, can act as a shield against our own privilege and our own responsibility and can absolve us of who we really are. We'll look at how this idea of cool was developed, something cultivated by oppressed communities. I'll look, too, at the positive side of what it means to reject the often ugly traditions of the generation that came before, and how my own Kerouacian American adventures have given me a sense of our fragmented national culture, of the problematic, and of the heartbreaking beauty, without which I certainly would never have been able to make this show. Today we answer what I assume are your most burning questions. Am I, Chelsea Weber-Smith, a hipster? Even more so, am I a poser? The answer to both of these questions is a resounding yes. This isn't super related to the rest of the episode, but you'll probably be delighted to learn, as I was, that we can point to Yankee Doodle Dandy as the first iteration of the American hipster, or more accurately, we could refer to him as the very first American poser. You'll, of course, remember the rhyme. Yankee Doodle Yankee was a scathing nickname given by the cool British elite to the Americans that they saw as stupid and classless. A doodle at the time, basically meaning dumb idiot, and riding on a pony instead of a horse was a homophobic slight. The end of the rhyme is not weirdly referring to elbow pasta as I thought up until recently, but instead to a fashion trend of the time, as well as a derogatory nickname for those who followed it, mostly college-educated young people who backpacked across Europe, like I did, and brought their new cultured way of life back to the English masses, including the Italian food called macaroni that they often bragged about trying. These macaroni hipsters were pretty outrageous. They wore enormous high white powdered wigs with teeny tiny little hats on top, and they were often gaunt men who wore the 18th century version of skinny jeans, carried expensive canes, and wore the pointiest shoes that England had ever seen. To the British, these privileged Americans shuttling European culture and their pathetic attempt to reach the ranks of the trendsetters was embarrassing. In short, sticking a feather in his cap did not make him cool. Like many other generations of the hip, the macaroni's fashion was effeminate, with the mainstream calling them that doubtful gender. But when the true macaronis of England used the insult, it was a swipe at Americans in general, basically in early 2000s style, calling them all gay. But this copying of the rich would start to pivot as Americans experienced more and more abundance during the Industrial Revolution, as capitalism loomed to some as a nightmare that would mar the soul of the individual, a new value emerging in America. To be different, to find a way to fight against the overculture as a personal revolution. But where to look for authenticity, free from the pressures of middle and upper class values and conformity? The marginalized, of course, who had been living in their own authentic margins since the very beginning minimalism, and an alleged rejection of mass corporate culture, it was all the rage for young poets and artists to buy up little wooden cabins out in the woods and rough it. Much of this movement was inspired by a long-bearded, brimmed-hat-wearing hipster named Walt Whitman, a super-gay poet known to lounge in streams naked, writing lines like, I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. At first, he self-published his own book of poems called Leaves of Grass, printing and distributing them himself as if they were the poetry zines of today, basically leaving them in coffee shops like I used to do. 
Not long after, it became hip to get back to nature, and a poor but authentic lifestyle would be pursued by scores of privileged seekers. I went into the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Henry David Thoreau, for those of you who might not fully remember your high school English classes on transcendentalist writers, was a man who, by many accounts, abandoned his affluent parents' pencil factory to go and live in a one-room cabin near Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts. He did this to find himself among the spirituality of nature, away from what was essentially a suburban life. Thoreau is most famous for his memoir about this time called Walden or a Life in the Woods, a document cited by hipsters through the ages right up to the present day. What makes these transcendentalists early hipsters is that their focus was on the self, a new philosophy and psychology that came from the Romantic era directly preceding it. The focus, for the very first time on a large scale, was knowing the self and thus separating the self from the complicated community of them, of the mainstream, rejecting society in favor of one long poetic selfie. The story of Walden has become one of a man of unparalleled depth, shirking off the chains of the modern world to be as humble and as simple as the poor. But the thing about the Walden Woods was that long before Henry David took off his boots and waded in, there were others living there, ones who only received a brief mention in his wildly successful book. As much as Thoreau wanted to lean and loaf in nature, he also wanted to live among the oppressed, who he thought could teach him what he needed to know about how to live without the complication of privilege. He knew that Walden was, essentially, the black part of town, the area with the worst farmland in which former slaves were pushed to live. One of his main influences was a former slave named Zilpa White, who had spent the 40 years prior on a tiny sliver of land at Walden, living alone with no money in a cabin similar to Thoreau's, though not as nice, one she shared with her dogs, cats, and hens. Thought of as a witch by the white people in town, Zilpa's solidarity and frugal survival was an inspiration to this 28-year-old poet, as was the story of another former slave named Brister Freeman, who had made his own way with just an acre of terrible soil and a desire to live a life of freedom and to have a family of his own. There are two competing narratives around the personality of Henry David Thoreau, and it's likely that the truth, as usual, falls somewhere in the middle. Stories abound and were certainly told at the time by his snickering critics that Henry David would return home to his town that was actually not that far away whenever he felt like it, enjoying big meals cooked by his adoring mother, who would also, of course, do his laundry for him. His enduring fans tell a different story of a family fall from grace and a life lived as a poor student on and off at Harvard. There has long been a standoff to make Henry David Thoreau into a man to be admired or a privileged poser, because perhaps, deep down, we wonder the same things about ourselves. But maybe he was both. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. 
Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And now, back to the show. Other mid-19th century hipsters stayed far away from nature, instead living what was known as a bohemian lifestyle in all the major cities, especially New York. Bohemians were hipsters, plain and simple, middle-class young adults living cheaply in cities, wearing used clothing, living unconventional drug and sex-happy lives, most of them aspiring artists. Their businesses and local hangouts were nothing if not hipster paradises, emulations of bygone eras Disney-fied into elite yet bohemian party palaces. You could walk an actual plank at Don Dickerman's Pirate Den, a cabaret with a real cannon, parrots and monkeys, all with the elaborate decor of a pirate ship. Meyer Horwitz's Village Barn provided a combination of booze, drugs, pastoral fantasy haystacks, ironic square dancing, and even real-ass barnyard animals. In Chicago, Vincent Noga's Gold Coast House of Correction was a prison-themed party bar, and a place called John's Coal Scuttle provided patrons with the decorative experience of being a coal miner. A phenomenon known as slumming parties became a huge hip pastime for privileged young people, events that would take them to the dangerous parts of town, sometimes posing as charity workers, and even pushing into homes and spaces of immigrants and black people just to see how they lived, to indulge in the behaviors that had been forbidden to them. The son of a U.S. senator was actually escorted to a slumming party by a paid police officer. Those who lived in these so-called slums began to see the value in duping these posers and created actual guided tours, complete with staged shootings, kidnappings, and the exhibition of marginalized human beings like sex workers, blind paupers, and opium addicts. This gawking exploitation, this affluent white voyeurism, nonetheless, was one of the first examples of the coolness of racial and class mixing that would continue to mark the archetypal hipster's movement through the world and time itself. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber. Let's misbehave. There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous. Let's misbehave. Again, as we talked about in Teenage Sex, the jazz era was the first meaningful large-scale movement that put young white people in close proximity to black people, and it drove mainstream white America violently crazy. 
As the KKK returned to prominence once more in the 1920s, something we talk more extensively about in our terrorism episodes, much of the older mainstream culture was horrifyingly complacent and even sometimes considered them a kind of folk hero. But the young felt differently about race. They saw value in blackness, for better or for worse, and they saw the fun and novelty of this jazzy life in a time when, finally, black celebrities started to rise to prominence, exuding one of the most valuable currencies in existence, coolness. In the 1920s, one borough of New York was experiencing a milestone in the black cultural story, one known as the Harlem Renaissance, which saw for the first time artistic success for the black community on a national scale. Along with famous jazz musicians, poets and writers like Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, and James Baldwin incorporated the spirit of jazz into their writing, all while keeping a close eye on the influx of white folks that were starting to change the landscape of the black spaces they had been cultivating on the margins. The popularity of this culture of blackness became so ubiquitous that Langston Hughes actually penned an essay called When the Negro Was in Vogue. My father hoped I'd be a boy. What a disappointment. A girl my mother cried. And you can see when they got me, they both were satisfied. As far as I'm concerned, this thing is breaking up my life. I don't know whether I should take a husband or a wife. Only slightly less cool than hanging out with the black jazz cats was hanging out at the gay drag balls that served as a spectacle for experience-hungry hipsters. Of course, for the most part, America did not approve of queer people, but they sure did approve of their flamboyant, super fun parties. Quick side note, I realize now that not all of our listeners are familiar with the term queer and may wonder if it's offensive. It's actually an updated expression, one I personally prefer, used as an umbrella term to cover the spectrum of the LGBTQ community. Anyway... Cities, especially New York, were havens for young queers, just as they remain today, a place you could actually find other people who share a similar identity, a chance to find love and be your weird, gender-defying, fabulous secret self. This attitude proved attractive, and similarly to the permissiveness that was found in conceptions of black culture, you know, drugs and sex, this queer culture served as a chance for squares to explore the feelings that they may never have explored otherwise, and of course, have a great time gawking at the spectacle of men dressed as women, women dressed as men, and feeling just a little more accepting and a little more smug than those who would refuse to attend something so morally questionable. In what is now known as the pansy craze, lasting from the 1920s into the 1930s, as many as 7,000 young straight people, or people pretending to be straight, including well-known celebrities, were crowding into these parties every night, watching people wearing elaborate costumes competing for prizes. The relations between white queer people and queer black people was not always a happy match. The drag ball scene had its roots all the way back to Harlem in the late 1860s when the black fraternal organization called the Hamilton Lodge created the first parties of this kind. When the black drag scene became home to the white queers of the upper and middle class who were seeking acceptance, they were able to afford bigger and better costumes as well as better seats, pushing out those who had originally created the culture. And then as the cycle completed, the straight white hipster voyeurs came on the scenes and bought up all the seats themselves. I ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming round. Just a wandering worker, I go from town to town. 
the police make it hard wherever I may go, and I ain't got no home in this world anymore. Soon, the Great Depression would snuff out these parties, and early indie rocker Woody Guthrie would emerge from a middle-class yet tragic life to hitchhike and train-hop the country in order to find work, but also to be close to and to tell the stories of the poor working class. He told of this nation that he found through the blue-collar folk songs that became wildly popular and remain some of our most patriotic anthems of the day. He was one of the original rambling men, a lineage that would inform my own rambling decades later. In addition to this immersion in the lives of unionizers and workers, he too found black people to be cool enough to copy. He talked about this as such, finding a, quote, Negro minstrel jazzy band blowing and tooting and pounding drums up and down our street. He claimed that he studied a black man who was shining shoes on the street while singing the blues, what Guthrie called the loneliest music I ever run on in my life. He said that these black men inspired him to, quote, sing out the first song I ever made up by my own self. This train-hopping, hitchhiking life was necessary for migrants desperate for any kind of work, but with the help of Woody, who rose to a fame he was not expecting, this Depression-era roaming would become a countercultural rite of passage for the hipsters that would come after him. And with the desire for this on-the-road adventure, with jazz in their bones and a dream of individualism popularized by Henry David Thoreau, the beat poets, the beatniks, came yelling their poems from under every dingy fire escape. What's a hepcat? A hepcat is the guy who knows all the answers and I'll tell you why. He's a highfalutin student at the Callaway vocab. Get hep, hep dictionary. By 1939, black jazz musician Cab Calloway published his book of jazz slang called Cab Calloway's Hepster Dictionary, Language of Jive. A hepster, he wrote, was a guy who knows all the answers and understands jive. At first, this term was a badge of cool for white artists, and they soon appropriated the term as they did with much of what was called jive talk. Soon, these hepsters would become hipsters, the first use of this word. And another group of writers, combining the philosophies of the transcendentalists like Henry David Thoreau and the wild freedoms of the 1920s, and added in an excess of Eastern spiritual thought new to America and a whole lot of recreational drugs. This group of poets and writers, known as the Beats, were described by their patron saint, Jack Kerouac, as, quote, rising and roaming America, bumming and hitchhiking everywhere as characters of a special spirituality. Poet Allen Ginsberg would describe their wild counterculture like this. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo and the machinery of night, floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz. Kerouac was certainly a student of cool, by which I mean a student of blackness, literally following around jazz legends like Zoot Sims, studying his mannerisms, his tastes, and the way he spoke. This homage to black culture was often expressed by the Beats, with Kerouac's hugely successful novel On the Road containing the following passage. At lilac evening, I walked with every muscle aching among the lights of 27th and Welton in the Denver-colored section, wishing I was a Negro, feeling that the best the white world had offered was not enough life, joy, kicks, darkness, music, not enough nights, 
wishing I could exchange worlds with the happy, true-hearted, ecstatic Negroes of America. Ripped to the eyeballs on speed for days and days, he typed on his typewriter on one long ream of paper, sleeping very little, recounting these tales of his slumming adventures as he thumbed it and roughed it across the real America. These books and poems were starting to spread into the mainstream, and the middle-class youth wanted a piece of this adventure in individuality. The proud hipster badge was dead as soon as the media and corporations caught on, selling the beat poet look to young people all over the country, you know, berets and turtlenecks, with this new copycat counterculture eventually becoming known as the mildly pejorative beatniks. These are the beatniks, the defiant young, coming from every walk of life, wrought with suppressed emotions and mocking the everyday course of modern society, intent on striking back as they wage a battle for their right to be heard. Continuing the long march toward hipness, those apparent non-posers turned into the hippies, often hitchhiking, often middle-class radicals who came with middle-class privilege, and a sense that the right thing to do, as always, was rebel, to drop out of society completely. Tattered and thrifted clothes hung loosely on their bodies as they sought the tradition of self-actualization, of realness and truth. As we know, they also pressed hard for civil rights for black folks and an end to the Vietnam War. The environment was a huge focus, and the hippies found value and later an obsession in the simple life, not unlike Henry David Thoreau, and many went to communes to try to emulate this lifestyle and add in a little pastoral fantasy from the rural world. Others stuck around the cities, leaning and loafing across Haight-Ashbury, doing drugs until they crashed and burned like the beats before them. Capped off by the drug-fueled Manson family murders, the hippie culture felt its death knell, and the malls began carrying their flowing flower power style without the radical culture behind it. Posers abounded throughout the 1970s, and what made it cool was gone. More after this. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. And now, back to the show. For everything that Seattle has come to symbolize about the great Northwest, add one more. <laughs> is, for better or worse, the birthplace of grunge. The grunge look is an urban lumberjack, anything-goes ensemble of duck boots, tattered shirts, and long underwear. By the time I was around in the 1990s, white hipsters were no longer appropriating black and gay culture quite so much, 
but they were obsessed with the blue-collar lives once celebrated by Woody Guthrie. Enter the patron saint of the 1990s, Kurt Cobain, the bleach-blonde, moody high school dropout who rose to mainstream success very quickly and rose to a status of this inauthenticity he so loathed. Grunge, the style I consider most influential on how us hipsters dress today, was marked by oversized flannels, dirty jeans with holes at the knee, work boots and messy hair, slacker meets homeless person meets industrial worker, our quintessential look in Kurt's Seattle stomping grounds and the Pacific Northwest at large. The youth were idolizing the fashions of working class America, the authenticity of the poor, looking like unemployed loggers. Hipsters want to be more real than where we come from, and to the white middle class, as we talked about in our episode called Suburbia, the real was where the danger was. The real was where the struggle lived. And hipsters were going to find it by God. And even if we didn't, we could look like we had. Like Thoreau wanted to live in a simple and older time, modern hipsters today seem to want to emulate a bygone era. An analog response to a digital world, oh my god, you should see my VHS collection, and imagine an image of me typing out poems on a typewriter in 2008. In addition to copying the marginalized, we want to go back to a time before. But that before, for many Americans, is a time they would never want to return to. In the modern era, soaked in the internet, hipsters are anything and everything. Everyone is special, and so no one is. Everything is borrowed, recycled. It seems that there's nowhere new to go. And hipster clothing has certainly become mainstream, so much so that it's almost hard not to dress like a hipster. An example comes to mind from 2012, when all of these hipster forces of race, sexuality, and class merged perfectly in a Maclemorian mainstream amalgamation. Kicked off by his massive hit, Thrift Shop, white hip-hop artist, the Seattle-based Macklemore, espoused the fun of buying secondhand clothing, with the rapper donning a flamboyant fur coat as he bounced through the bins of our local Goodwill. The beat poets, inspired by the style of queers and black folks, were the first to popularize secondhand clothing, especially the purchasing of elaborate fur coats, which was a kind of direct response and irony to the capitalism that marked the affluent and repressive suburban post-war period. The cycle was complete when a company called Lord & Taylor began selling fur coats to rich kids who wanted to look like beatniks, but also wanted to avoid the poor who haunted the aisles of their artsy potential. It brings to mind also that famous picture of Kurt Cobain wearing a fur coat and super cool sunglasses. One of Macklemore's first big hits was an anthem called Same Love, a celebration of the gay struggle, which was perhaps a noble gesture, but a categorically hipster one in the ways we've defined it today. One in which queer culture, and obviously black culture, led to an unparalleled success in the white mainstream, with his music sometimes called hip-hop for suburban moms. For decades, hipsters have benefited from copying marginalized communities, and 1920s black writer Langston Hughes wrote of this successful co-option in his book called When the Negro Was in Vogue. Quote, it was a period when white writers wrote about Negroes more successfully, commercially speaking, than Negroes did about themselves. Not only that, but the drug use that marked each counterculture and led to many deaths among these leaders of cool has, to this day, been a predominantly middle and upper class white issue, as we use illegal drugs at higher rates than our black lower income counterparts. And yet, as we talked about in our episode called Drugs, it's the black community who have always been disproportionately arrested and imprisoned. So, okay. 
Let's see if we can figure out this thing called the hipster, a young person who desires nothing more than to assert an aggressive individuality while also clinging to a counterculture, part of a collective but still standing out. Human animals want both of these things. For hundreds of thousands of years, hunter-gatherers needed to be part of a group in order to receive the benefits. Safety, other humans to mate with, a share of the food, a sense of love and care, and the bursts of oxytocin that it provides to the brain. But at the same time, we want to stand out, to be singled out, to possess qualities that make us attractive to potential mates and the serotonin they provide, hence a counterculture community, or at least an association that allows the members to still assert a persona counter to the mainstream. We are pissed off when our specialness is challenged by the posers who want our social benefits, those who make us not so special anymore by dressing the same way that we do. It seems that the rejection of all things popular is simply the desire not to be lost in the crowd, the desire not to be average, the fear of risking the power that comes with being an individual. 1950s black novelist Ralph Ellison claimed that being cool was resistance to provocation, coolness under pressure, indispensable values in the struggle for freedom. Historically, black folks and queer people have only really been accepted as entertainers, just as they were during the pansy craze and the jazz era. Presenting with a kind of confidence, both groups could find just enough power to get by. Black artists like Ralph Ellison believed this cool was a necessary strength, a necessary calm, a secret language that could sometimes protect them from abuse by plantation owners, from the police, from dangerous racists at large, by being non-reactive with a restraint most of us could never imagine. Queer folks, and historically especially Black queer people, develop their own version of cool. Pride. The strength to also remain calm and happy while being constantly the focus of laughter, ridicule, and hate. And to this day, we've made it work for us. It's also important to note that the white queer culture that developed also followed the cues of the black queer community, sometimes pushing them to the margins of the spaces they developed. And once the posers poured in, ones with no marginalized identity, the hipster cycle was complete. And the cycle remains so to this day. Like we're talking about on this season, there is a convenient cognitive dissonance that privileged young people have used since the beginning, and so many of us still do. In a way, we pose as minorities. We try to take on their struggle and make it our own. And we see ourselves as the good ones, willing to adventure into the controversial spaces that the mainstream culture tells us we are not supposed to. I think it might be a way to absolve ourselves, a way to assert that we are better more progressive than those who do not make the same homage, this homage that often eclipses the very cultures from which it takes its cues. We can look back at the hipness of middle and upper class slumming, those brave young adults who once posed as charity workers to literally push inside minority spaces, the rich kids that hired cops to escort them through the inner city. These contradictions, this long-term interplay between minority groups and the enlightened hipsters they inspire, is deeply complicated. Black artists and the white artists they inspired were often friends and often felt a kinship and a gratefulness for each other. But homage is a delicate idea, because when homage becomes success, becomes fame, becomes money, it's no longer just homage. It's theft. But without these middle-class kids rejecting the overt racism and homophobia that was the status quo, it's hard to imagine that we would have continued our slow march toward any kind of justice without them. 
because the other option at that time was to stay in their place in the affluent white status quo, to simply carry on the prejudiced traditions of the previous generation, of their current generation, to stay quietly in line instead of rebelling, however problematically, toward a more just society. The mainstream has only seemed to care, to listen, after these declarations of cool, only after that coolness made the frightening unfamiliar into the familiar. After, of course, it trickled down all the way to the suburban moms. It might seem like a stretch, but I think coolness may be the single most important cultural mechanism of change. But that doesn't make those who chase after it into the simple heroes of our story, nor does it make them the simple villains. No one has ever wanted to cop to the fact that they themselves are a hipster, and often the hipsteriest hipster turns his or her nose up and points the finger at someone they deem the real hipster. We all know the type. As it's often talked about, the modern hipster mode, sort of opposite to the transcendentalists and the beats, has been all about irony, about not caring, about a hollow individuality cultivated by the pictures we take of ourselves and display to all our social media followers. The way we look, the way we present ourselves, means so much more to us than we want to admit. Because if we look the part, if we tweet the right buzzwords, if we show our modern homage to the marginalized, do we let selfies stand in for political actions? Is the sense of satisfaction we get in those moments actually driving us further away from our intended goals? Instead of pointing out the hipsters and the posers, maybe we ought to look at the poser staring back from our iPhone screen. There are simultaneous truths about who I have been throughout my life. I grew up a middle-class white suburban teen and then a privileged college student, not unlike the beat poets. But at the same time, in my other life, what I found on the road was a country of hurt, of every kind of American you can think of, who told me their stories, their secrets, their dreams, and most often, their pain. Many, many of these rides came from blue-collar white American men wearing the outfits of Kurt Cobain, the outfits I was wearing, a life that couldn't be farther from my own understanding. At the end of the day, even though I did make a brave choice as a queer, female-presenting individual, my privilege still shielded me, and I was safe. If I needed it, I could be saved and taken out of this life and put, easily, back into my other one. As an admitted hipster myself, I want to think of who I am beyond what I can take, the ways I am real, and the ways I'm a poser without even noticing. My life on the road was certainly no Kerouacian bro-roam, but it's always more complicated than certain identities, like my queerness, absolving us of what we choose to do and how we choose to live. I know that in many ways, the stories that I have been given the privilege to hear on those never-ending highways they have never really been my stories to tell. But that simultaneous truth is that if I had never gone, if I had never immersed myself in this damaged and beautiful America, if I hadn't wanted to, what would the alternative have been? American hysteria would not exist without these years on the road, without an understanding of this nation that could only really come from the forced intimacy of a ride, of a passenger seat, next to an inevitably problematic American who became, suddenly, so easy to love. None of the stories about the people I met on the road are mine. None of this pain belongs to me, and I don't want to pretend that it does. But sometimes, with these men and women of America, I cried too. 
So many middle-aged, sad white men with white scars on their arms from laying cables underground who told me about how much they missed their dead wives. An army vet on the way to his beloved pastor's funeral. A woman with a row of bright beanie babies staring out her back window who prayed out loud, not unkindly, for my salvation. A self-identified butch lesbian named Kathy who told me what it meant to be gay, what it meant to be lonely, who saw me before I could truly be brave enough to see myself. In that moment, Kathy and I were aching, unwitnessed, together, and we weren't entertaining anyone. Our pain belonged to us, and so did our love, our power. There's another man I remember, a black trucker talking to me under a neon buzz near the grinding jaw of rows and rows of semi-trucks wearing a gold pinky ring. He told me his life story of a pain I couldn't begin to understand, swaying slightly under a shock of restless stars. Every night, he said, when his long metal trailer was empty, he played the blues. He played his saxophone in that long, echoey container, alone. It was a secret, stageless place. A place that no one knew. And a place we never would. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show... We're covering another major American archetype, rednecks, a group that's been misunderstood for all of American history. The nonprofit we'd like to highlight for this episode is called Black Art Futures Fund, which seeks to promote and elevate the preservation of Black arts and culture. You can learn more and donate on their website, blackartfutures.org and you can find that link in our show notes American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me Chelsea Weber-Smith produced and edited by Clear Como Studios with research assisted by Riley Smith and script editing by Miranda Zickler We're always hoping that you might consider donating to our Patreon as well. You'll get an extra episode every month, video diaries of what we're doing, and you'll get to know things before we tell anyone else, and sometimes you'll even get your episodes early. You can find the link to join our Patreon community in our show notes. As promised, we're going to shout out our newest $25 patron, Brianna Seahorn. Thank you so much for your help. We couldn't do this without you. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great week. And I just want you to know, I think you're cool just the way you are. I've never been hip in my whole life. Not once, not for five minutes. 